Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. My name is Christopher. I'm the executive minister here at Area 10 Faith Community. It's always a privilege uh, to join you, whether in person or you're watching at home or in the future or listening in your car and you're hearing my deep, sonorous, James Earl Jones type voice. Not at all. I have a weird squeaky voice, so you know it's weird. Uh, Last week, Rachel, our creative arts minister, she talked about um, expectation versus reality. And she walked us through the account of how John the Baptist had a lot of kind of assumptions and presuppositions of who Jesus was supposed to be. And Jesus didn't necessarily align with all those. And we've been going through the book of Luke this summer. And one of the things that we continually see in the book of Luke is Jesus really turning the world upside down and defying expectation at every turn. Rachel had one line in particular at the end of her message that I just wanted to remind us of this morning as, a, as kind of a springboard for the rest of the, of the day. She said, the reality of salvation is not to release you from your current circumstances, but to bring healing and hope to people who are broken. And I think the reason that appeals to so many of us and why that resonated with so many people, I had so many different conversations this week about that line, is because I think we all know that we all long for hope and healing. Because we all experience brokenness in a variety of different ways. And it shows up for us in a lot of different ways, right? Because we're human. We make mistakes. Sometimes we just make really dumb decisions. Sometimes we make decisions that are really painful to other people. We go through seasons of fear and pain that leave lasting marks in our life. And sometimes we are the the cause for anger and pain in someone else's. All of these things exist in such a way, and they are one of the reasons that Jesus came to this earth to take on the sins of humanity. The gospel message, which most of you, if not all of you, have probably heard before at some point in your life, maybe multiple times. It's a really appealing message when you think about it. God became flesh. Jesus came to this earth, took on the sins of humanity because we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. He died on our behalf, rose from the dead, and and had victory over death so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can have relationship with God, so that we can experience the life-changing reality of grace, the life-changing reality of hope and healing, so that we can live in the promises that we see in Scripture that God has for us now and in eternity. That's an appealing message, right? Like it sounds lovely. It's one of those things that when you look back the last 2,000 plus years, we see lots of people have responded to pretty positively to that message, but there's a lot of people that don't. And there's a lot of people that struggle with it. And I think ultimately it's because it requires something of us. Even though it's an appealing message, even though it's lovely, even though it sounds great, it still requires something of us. It requires repentance. And repentance is one of those kind of churchy words that has unfortunately been used as a bludgeon and in some really just horrific and terrible ways throughout history. And really the core meaning of repentance is an individual will look at their thinking and their behavior, recognize that it's not good, that it's wrong, 
they own it, and then they move on to a new thinking and a new behavior that they believe to be true. That's what repentance is. It requires repentance. It requires surrender. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. It requires the recognition of our sin and our need for a Savior. And for a lot of us, we don't want to need anybody. And it requires a willingness and a commitment to follow Him, and particularly the way that He is laid out for all who believe. But it's still an appealing message. I just think that we have lots of reasons why we go, I don't know, it's too much. And we, we kind of have all these different difficulties that we'll list. I know I certainly did before I, I, I decided to follow Christ. I had all kinds of reasons as to why I didn't want to do it. And ultimately, I think most of the reasons that we come up with can, can fall into one of two big buckets. The first one is doubt, which we talked about last week. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that message or see that message, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. Um, we all have doubt. It's normal. It's like nose hair. You can pretend you don't have it. But look... We see it, like we know it's there, right? Like, it's not a bad thing. I think the problem is, is that in our day and age, especially now, um, like we look at doubt and questions as some form of of an attack. Because if we don't know the answer to someone's question, or if someone is is seeking understanding, they're being inquisitive about something that you think or believe, and you don't, you know, maybe you haven't thought through it, or maybe you don't know the answer. You don't know what to do, and so then it's like, oh, well, you just shouldn't ask the question. And we see that. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're on one side of an issue or another. Just across the board, we've gotten to this place as a culture where we dismiss doubt as it's like that it's the bad thing that you shouldn't be able to do. And the reality is, let's be honest, we all have some deep and profound questions for and about God, right? Like, I know I do. I've been a Christian for over 20 years, and although my faith is is deeper than it's ever been, I have more questions than I've ever had. We have deep and profound questions for and about Jesus, for and about the church, for and about the Holy Spirit. Those things just exist. Doubt is not necessarily a bad thing, but I do think that doubt is one of those things that oftentimes will make us throw up our hands in the air and say, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to navigate this. And so we'll back away from hope and healing and grace and the promises that God has for us. So that's a pretty big bucket. But I do think that's a bucket that most of us kind of figure out how to navigate through throughout our life. I think the bigger bucket is really control because we really like to be in control. We like to control our own lives, right? Like, we don't want to be told what to do. Surely, I cannot be the only person that when they see a sign that says, don't touch this, I immediately go, I got to touch it. Like, I want to touch it. Like, I, like, it's just, it's in us, right? We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told what to believe. We don't want to be told how to act or how to respond. We don't want to surrender. So what good connotation does that word carry? Like when we hear the word surrender, we think, you know, raising the white flag, it means that we've lost the battle, that we are the losers, and we don't want to be losers. We've allowed ourselves to believe that control is the primary way that we have power, or at the very least an illusion of power. And the good news of Jesus, the gospel message of Jesus, in many ways, forces us to ask some serious questions of ourselves. And it invites us to ask these questions repeatedly. And one such question is this, what is more important to me, God or myself? 
And the answer to that question can change day to day or week to week, right? If you have a lot of questions about God, maybe you're, you're just now starting in this, this place where you're like, maybe I should check out Jesus. Maybe there's something to Christianity, but you've been hurt, and maybe you've seen things in life that you just, you, you can't understand, and so you're in this place of just deep doubt, but curious. Odds are, if you, if you take your answer honestly, you're going to say, well, I'm most important to myself, because I need to take care of me. I've learned that, that you got to take care of number one first. Where this kicks up for a lot of us, though, is that in this room, there's a lot of us that want to say, well, obviously God is most important. But we feel a tension inside of us because for many of us that will say God is most important, we know that what we're really saying is, well, I want God to be most important. When you look at the whole of your life, how you conduct yourself, what you give your time to, who, what, who, what relationships you're in, what you run away from, what you run towards, what you speak out against, what you speak up for, how you spend your money, how you use your gifts and talents, the, the entirety of who you are, what do you think your life says is most important? It's an uncomfortable question. And the good news of Jesus invites us to make an ongoing choice about what is most important. We have the opportunity to echo what Christ prayed in the garden before he died on the cross. That God, it's not about what I want, it's what you want that matters. It's your will, not mine. We, we have the opportunity to rest in the truth of what Jesus preached, that whoever wants to save their life will lose it. We also have the opportunity every day to ignore all of that so that we can still feel like we're in control. And I get it. This is not me throwing stones. I want to be really clear about that. I will never preach a message that I'm not preaching to myself. You could speak to my wife, my child, the people I work with, my friends and my family. They will all tell you I am a control freak. <laughs> I like control. <laughs> I really, really enjoy it. And control shows up for us in different ways. There are people that maybe are wired like me where they're really, it's very clear that they like control. But for some of us, for some of us, we, we say that we don't like control, but really we have a habit of control that we don't even realize is there because when we were younger, we were scared or we were hurt. And we realized quickly that if we don't control the surroundings around us, that we will never feel safe. And so as we go through all these different stages of life, we have this habit of control that we would never even say is control, but that exists Control is one of those things that is so addictive that I think it convinces us that it's more important than relationships. It's so addictive that it tells us it's, that it's more important than healing and hope, that it's more important than grace. Control is so addictive, it tells us that it's more important to feel like a God than to surrender to God. And that's an uncomfortable place to sit. But that's where we're going to sit today. So, good times. We're going to pick back up in Luke chapter 7 today, and we are going to start in verse 24. And how this is going to work, we're going to just go through a few verses at a time um, and kind of unpack them as we go. And the reason we're doing that this way this morning is this is one of those sections of Scripture that, honestly, if you read it on your own, you, it would probably go something like, uh-huh, what? Okay, what? No. I'm just going to move on. It's one of those little sections of Scripture. And, and those just exist where, where you read it and you think, 
I don't know if I know what this is about, but oh, look, there's a story after it, so I'm going to focus on that. And so that's why we're going to kind of unpack this as we go. We're going we're gonna to learn together, hopefully, some new stuff, um, stuff that I think is super interesting. I'm, I am a little bit of a geek, but that's, that's fine. And one of the things before we get in that I really want to uh, just kind of unpack on the forefront, one of the things that we always hope is that people of Area 10, that you will be reading your Bible, that you will be digging into Scripture. And the one thing I want to encourage you about is that when you read Scripture, lots of times different things will happen. Sometimes you'll feel an emotional gut punch, and you don't know why, but you feel it. Sometimes you'll have an aha moment, and you'll start to see some connections, but you, you move on too quickly. Or sometimes you're reading something and you have questions like, what does that word mean? Why would he say that that way? And, and things like that. Get a small notebook. And so when you read Scripture, when you have those emotional gut punch moments, when you have those aha moments, when you have those questions, just write them down and allow yourself to sit in it. I think, I think reading plans are a, a great thing. The problem is, is that we gamify everything in our culture, right? So it's like we go, okay, I've got to read Romans chapter 1 today. And so we just read it and plow through it because it's like, all right, check, done. As opposed to just allowing yourself to sit in it. Even if that means that you're stuck in six verses for a week, that's okay. Just give your time to sit in, in, that, in, that, in the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And I want us to practice that a little bit today. So starting in verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, he's speaking about John the Baptist here, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. The first thing to notice here is Jesus' tone. We like to think of Jesus as like the, like, he's like chill, like, hey man, I just love you. And like, you're awesome. And right here, Jesus is straight up salty, like, like, toed, hand on the hip, like, nah. Mm -mm. Like, he is salty. The rhetorical questions he's asking right here are borderline sarcastic. So when we can understand the tone of what Jesus is doing, the next thing for us to do is to say, so why is he salty? <laughs> like, what is it that's happened that has made Jesus kind of go, hold up, mm -mm. this is not how we're having this conversation. Like, what's happened in this crowd that Jesus has been talking to that he feels the need to push back in this way? Linguistically and contextually, in the entire chapter 7 of the book of Luke, we see enough information that helps us really understand what's happening. The crowd knew about John the Baptist. Many of them had gone out to hear him. Many of them had been baptized by him. But now that Jesus is here and the growing reality of who Jesus really is is becoming clearer, all of these people who were listening to John are beginning to look at him as irrelevant. And beyond that, now that John has expressed doubt and concern, he does, or they are doing what oftentimes we do. He, they don't feel necessarily safe and comfortable. And so they go, okay, no, he's even more irrelevant. Because that's what we do, right? We'll, we'll find people to follow. We, we find people to look up to. And when they start to express doubt or fear of something, or they're seeking to understand something, it starts to make us a little uncomfortable because we don't know what to do with that. And oftentimes we will go, okay, well, I can't follow you anymore. I'm, I'm going to follow this person wholly. And Jesus is going, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're not, we're not going to do that to John. And he's really coming to John's defense, and he's, and he's very, being very uh, blunt with them. Like, why in the world would you go out into the middle of the wilderness to see something as common as a reed? 
You're not going out there to hear something that you want to hear. You're not going out there so that you can feel comfortable. You're going out there because you know you need to hear something. Don't, don't defame this man. He is important. What then did you go out to see? Verse 26. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. There's a lot in these two verses and just some historical context. Throughout G- Jewish history, God sent prophets. These individuals who God spoke truth to and God spoke truth through. What, what God expected, the necessity to course correct, and most importantly, spoke about the coming Messiah who would turn the world upside down and save humanity. But humanity does what humanity do. They ignore God. And so for over 400 years, at this point, God had not sent another prophet. For 400 years, the nation of Israel relied on the Old Testament scriptures, on on the narrative that they told each other in their communities, and they waited, and they longed, and they searched for God's continued direction and the fulfillment of his promise. And in this time, lots of people would claim to be prophets, and they would be proven to be false. So suddenly, when people begin to hear that there's this man out in the wilderness who is speaking like an old-school prophet, who is talking about course correction, who is talking about the coming kingdom of God, people take notice. And it wasn't like a walk down the block. It wasn't like walking from here, you know, two blocks down to go hear someone talk. These people are making day-long, week-long journeys to go hear him talk. And the thing that oftentimes a lot of people miss that I personally find really fascinating is that John is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets, When you look at the Bible, you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so oftentimes, we just segment everything. And the New Testament, Jesus is is the main event, right? And then we've got the story of the church after Jesus ascends into heaven. And so John is in this very small window right before Jesus, and he just gets missed. And the reality is, is that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is the middleman between the old and the new. He is a figurative bridge between the promise of the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. And beyond that, John John himself was actually prophesied about, meaning John's existence and role was foretold long before John's life ever began. We read it in the book of Isaiah as well as in the book Malachi, which is what Jesus is quoting here. The point Jesus is making to this crowd is that John is not simply some irrelevant prophet. He's not someone who just simply be dismissed. But he's actually the one who was foretold long ago that would usher in the kingdom of God, that would pave the way for Jesus. And the crowds being steeped in in good Jewish learning and culture, they would understand the implications of that. And then Jesus flips the script once again, verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What? I asked quite a few people to read over these verses in preparation for this message, and I was like, hey, let me know what questions pop up to you. And almost all of them, when they got to this verse, were like, what? Like, what does that even mean? Like, he was defending John, now he's dissing John. Like, born of a woman, why does that matter as opposed to what? Born of a crocodile? What's the kingdom of God? What's the least in the kingdom of God? What, what is happening? So real quick, the expression born of a woman, it's just a turn of phrase to say human. It's, it just sounds fancier. It's the equivalent of saying, these are the fruits of my loins when people speak about their kids. Also, please don't ever say these are the fruits of my loins. <laughs> 
so uncomfortable for so many reasons. So it's just a normal common turn of phrase. Um, the kingdom of God, that's a much bigger nugget that we, we're not going to have time to really unpack today. But for, this, for, for now, in the simplest of terms, the kingdom of God here is referring to the very real and tangible reality of Jesus ushering in a new era, really ushering in the new covenant, where those who believe, surrender, and follow him are able to experience just the fullness of God and the promises that he has for us. I would actually really encourage you in your personal uh, devotion time and, and scripture time to dig into to the idea of the kingdom of God. I um, mean, we'll, we'll share some resources on our social media pages this week of some good starting points. There's just a lot of depth there that I think will continue to give you to some really good context. Um, the prophets that we read about in the Old Testament, they longed for the day of the Messiah, of the Savior. They longed for a time when those promises that they had heard would be fulfilled. And Jesus is indicating how great the difference is between the old era and the new era that has come, the old covenant and the new covenant. And in the, book of, 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 in the New Testament book of Hebrews, in particular chapter 11, we have this list of people that are viewed as like the greatest and most faithful uh, 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 people that followed God, which is comical in a lot of ways because these people are all jacked up like you think you, like, have issues and that you're, like, oh, I'm not good enough? Yeah. Like, no, these people were, were very much redeemed and experienced the grace of God, but they were not perfect people by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, almost every stanza begins with, by faith. By faith, Moses. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Joseph, Sarah, Gideon, David, Rahab, the prophets, all of these people of faith and many more like them trusted that one day, one day, God would send a Savior to make all things new. Jesus' point here is reinforcing the idea that that time for fulfillment has finally arrived. That time that they had longed for, for that the nation of Israel had longed for for so long, has finally come. And Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. And from that point forward, true greatness comes from knowing and following Jesus. To put it another way, the implications of what Jesus is saying is this. Those people that we read about in the book of Hebrews, those Old Testament great people of faith, they would sit at our feet to listen about our experiences with the life-changing reality of Christ. That's a big deal. Verse 29, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Essentially, the crowd saw the wisdom of what Jesus was saying, and they responded in like with the baptism of John. What's the baptism of John? I'm so glad you asked. I'm glad we have a good, good report here. So we hear the word baptism today, um, and we are actually having a baptism after church today, which is awesome. Would love for anybody who would like to come over there and join us after the service to do that. When we talk about baptism today, we are talking about baptism as we see after Jesus has resurrected. It is a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of surrender, of, of deciding, like, I am going to follow Christ. The baptism of John... Um, was for Gentiles, meaning people that weren't Jewish. Jewish people didn't get baptized. That wasn't a thing. That wasn't a thing that happened. This was a baptism for Gentiles who wanted to repent from, from a Gentile way of recognizing this, this way is not the correct way, 
and I am choosing to live this way, um, the way that, that the nation of Israel is living. So the baptism of John is that. This is why John caused such a stir. Because not only was this dude out in the wilderness speaking and, and preaching and talking about the coming kingdom of God, but he's baptizing Jewish people. Like, you just don't do that. Like, it just makes no sense. The baptism of John really is a baptism of repentance for the Jewish people that in their humanity, they made themselves more important than God. They lost track of the core tenets of their faith and what God had called them to and ultimately made themselves more important than God. And I think, I think it's something that all of us are guilty of. People now, just like then, will come and believe and follow Jesus and experience the kingdom of God, but we all face the possibility of being a Pharisee. It doesn't, it doesn't take much. Look, the, the Pharisees that we know of, they, in those 400 years without a prophet, they turned 613 Old Testament commands into over 6,000 laws and regulations. 613 Old Testament commands that were meant to show humanity's need for a savior and humanity's need for redemption, 613 Old Testament commands that were meant to act as guardrails, as, as measured boundaries to fully experience the hope and glory of God, ended up being over 6,000 laws and regulations that really just created a foundation of legalism and corruption and control and the illusion of power. It was just couched under the banner of God. Every day, Every day, we have an opportunity to respond to Jesus. Every day, there is an opportunity to declare his rightness, to, to surrender, to own our mistakes, to follow him. And every day, there is an opportunity to reject all of that. Jesus closes this conversation with an illustration, verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? And he's specifically talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and using this as a warning for the hearers. Verse 32, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he is a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus is using the illustration of Jesus playing. And if you've ever watched children play, it's adorable. It's great until it's not. And then it's a nightmare. <laughs> and it switches real quick. <laughs> you know, and kids back then are just like kids today. If they don't have toys to play with, which they didn't, there was no Toys R Us back then. You, no, there's no Toys R Us now. Sad. Wah, wah. <laughs> Pour one out for Toys R Us. There was no toy stores back then. You know, they played pretend. And weddings and funerals were the only thing, the most exciting things in these kids' lives. Weddings lasted a week, funerals, funerals lasted a week. And Jesus is drawing this, this illustration of these kids are playing, but they're acting like that kid, like when you watch other kids play and, they, and one kid brings the ball and the kid is yelling at all the other kids like, no, that's not the right way to play with the ball. I'm just going to go home. And then they leave. Essentially, Jesus is saying, y'all a bunch of babies. Y'all need to grow up. Y'all a bunch of spoiled brats. 
You think it's all about you. You think it's all about what you want. You think that you know everything. You've built yourself up so high that no one else can reach that place. You expect, you expect God to conform to you. How arrogant is that? The message of hope and healing and reconciliation is lost on you because all you care about is what you think that you know and maintaining control. And Jesus ends it with, with basically saying, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see who's right. Because ultimately, the fruit of salvation, meaning those that have actually surrendered their lives to Christ and are actively choosing each day to make God more important, it shows in their life. There's a reason the church has lasted for over 2,000 years. It's not because people have tried with power and control. It's when people have tried to claim power and control that the church has suffered most, that the church has caused the most harm. The church has continued to move forward because what Jesus has said is true. What Jesus is calling out then is the same thing we see today. We've all experienced that petulant child syndrome, right? Maybe in ourselves. Certainly, if you have kids, you've seen it. Honestly, we see it with politicians and in our culture, media, all the time. Sadly, we see it in our churches. There are always going to be people that want their way. There are always going to be people who force their will on others. There are always going to be people who will join a group for a short time because that group can give them what they want, and then they'll move on to another group when they decide that they want something different. There will always be people who never take responsibility. There are always going to be Pharisees. When you look at the whole of history, we see some pretty common things show up. Chief among them is humans messing things up because we make mistakes and we learn from them and then we make new mistakes and then we learn from them and then sometimes we repeat the old mistakes and so on and so forth. And in doing that, somewhere we've set ourselves up that it's, it's really easy to look at the Pharisees of this time or the hypocrites of our time and we stand over them with such judgment when really we're probably just as guilty of some of the same behaviors. How many of you have tried to control a situation or your life in such a way that you've become a prisoner of your own making? How many of you have tried to control a situation or your life or other people's lives in such a way that you've, you've really left a path of broken and damaged relationships? How many of you have intertwined your political principles with your faith so thoroughly they're no longer distinguishable from one another? How many of you have led out with the best of intentions and have ended up lost in the wilderness? Or worse, how many of you have led out with the best of intentions and now you've actually become part of the problem? How many of you have held on to a belief so tightly that anyone who dare think differently or ask you a question or have doubt becomes your enemy and you wage war with them because there could only be winners or losers and you will not be a loser. How many of you worship people, causes, laws, your own freedom more than God? How many of you have held on to the notion that the ends justify the means, even when the means are contrary to the life and teachings of Jesus? We could hate 
the Pharisees of the law and the teachers of the law all we want. We can angrily shake our fists at the hypocrites we see around us every day who all have a cause, who all have some form of faith, who all have a system of belief, who all say one thing and do another. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, honestly, are we that different? Are we just as guilty? We see Jesus repeatedly throughout his life, throughout his ministry, rebuke and call out the arrogant and the spiritually prideful, the ones who have so much confidence in themselves. And we also see Jesus throughout his life lowering himself to affirm and encourage and serve those who are struggling with their own brokenness, doubt, and humanity. Why? Why does he do that so often? Why does he do that so consistently? Because we read in Proverbs, wisdom comes from humility and God detests the proud heart. Because we read in the book of James, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble because we see Jesus embody humility when he takes out off his outer garments and washes his disciples' feet and say, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to point people to God because his will is what matters most. Because from Genesis to Revelation, we see time and time again that pride is humanity's undoing. When we look at our own lives, when we look at the most painful experiences of our lives, I am betting that we can look at it and see that pride was baked into it so much that it became our undoing. And what is control? What is control if not the arrogant and prideful mentality that we know better than God? That we know better than Jesus. The good news of Jesus, and it is good news, ultimately invites us to wrestle through the question repeatedly, what is more important to me, God or myself? What I see every day is people around me doing the best they can with what they have. I see people succeed and fail and get in ruts. I see people wonder if the mundaneness of the everyday is all life is ever going to be. I see people wanting to understand their purpose, the meaning of life. I experience people who are living in a prison of their own making. I have lived with the repercussions of my own arrogance, and I'm sure I will continue to struggle with my own arrogance my whole life. I have lived with the repercussions of other people's arrogance, and I am sure that I will live through those repercussions again. I've seen victims become victimizers. I've seen heroes become villains. I have seen people with the best of intentions end up lost in the wilderness. I've seen people with the best of intentions end up becoming part of the problem. I've seen people experience fear and anger and loss in such a profound way that it becomes their undoing and becomes the undoing of their family and their community. But I have also walked with people who are hopeless who now have so much hope that they give it to everyone around them. I've experienced people who are angry, hurt, and frustrated and have lost so much become the peacemakers in their families and in their communities. I've encountered the joy of people when they discover the purpose that God has laid out for them. I've watched as people who were once lost are now found. I have watched victiminders, victimizers come to a place of repentance and become the embodying reality of the hands and feet of Jesus. I have seen God redeem the most painful 
and traumatic experiences of a person's life to help others with similar pain and trauma heal and move forward. I've witnessed firsthand the power of God, the mercy of Jesus, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I have watched as lives have been transformed, as relationships have been healed, as deep wounds have been covered over, and all things have been made new because people responded. Because people got to a place that they were willing to ask themselves an uncomfortable question every day and wrestle with it. Because they actively surrendered. Because they seek forgiveness. Because every day they are reminded that God is more important. They're not always perfect. They still have doubts. There are still mistakes. There is still healing to occur. Pride still pops up. And power and control still call out. But in that space of surrender, in that space of humility, in that space of following Jesus, that is where we discover the hope and healing and purpose that we so all desperately crave and seek. Every day, every day, we have an opportunity to respond to Jesus. How do you respond to him? How will you respond to him? Today? Tomorrow? This week? This month? This year? I don't know what God is asking you to respond to today. I do know that he is asking you to think about it. I know that he's challenging you to wrestle through the question of what's more important, him or yourself. My hope and my prayer for this church, our staff's hope and prayer for this church, is that God continues to grow us in depth and in breadth, but that it comes from a place of true transformation. So listen, sing, pray, think, respond. Respond.